if you're if you're new with us, uh, we have been walking through the book of Genesis together, and it's been really, really rich so far. And just I just want to note one of the themes we've been seeing so far, which has been this: that God is moving us. Uh, he's moving from chaos to order, but he doesn't stop with order. He doesn't stop with just creating a world that's orderly and that works and functions. But he goes on to, to bring fullness to his creation so that we can worship and enjoy him with our lives. So I got a question for you. How many of you have played the game fishbowl before? Anybody? Fishbowl. Like, there's got to be, okay, there we go. Yeah, 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 back there. It's good. Fishbowl. Okay, so fi- here's what fishbowl is. Yeah, Russell's excited about it. Uh, fishbowl is this, and Russell can correct me if I'm wrong, but fishbowl is a combination of three different games. It's, it's the game Taboo, Charades, and Password. It's absolute chaos, but it's a blast. Okay, so, you know, everyone, here's what you do. You divide into two teams, and everybody puts like three phrases or words into a hat or a fish bowl, probably is where the name came from. Uh, and, and, um, and you put them into the bowl, and then you divide up into the teams. In the first round, you're playing like taboo, which is this. You're, you're describing uh, what is on to your team, what is on your piece of paper without saying the word or the phrase that's actually on there. So for instance, in our family, uh, you would hear something most certainly about the University of Kentucky, Harry Potter, because we're sinners, and, um, and, and, and almost certainly something about fecal matter or a bowel movement. It's just the way, it's the stage we're in right now, it's just the way it is. And then the next round is great because it's about, uh, it's about acting out. And you know, when you're acting something out, it makes so much sense in your mind, but then when it comes out, you're kind of like, what in the world is that? We, we learned this best from Bruce and Willette Owens in our MC. It was absolutely hilarious. And then lastly, you're playing the game Password, which basically means you get to say one word to describe what's on that piece of paper to, for them to, to kind of connect the dots. And, uh, and, and what you see is that it doesn't really, about this game, it doesn't really matter about the knowledge that you have of what is on that piece of paper. What matters more than anything is the knowledge that you have about the people in the room. That, that's why if you're playing the password phrase with, uh, with, with, with Patrick Choi and you get the word hopeless, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't say things like despair or life apart from God. Instead, you would say Atlanta sports and he would totally get it. It's just what would happen. He, he, would, uh, he would get it. So the, the text that we're in today draws out the commonality that we have as mankind. And it shows us uh, really how crucial it is to understand Genesis 2 because it kind of it uproots a lot of what we're experiencing culturally right now. The redefinition of things that God designs, all that kind of stuff. And, and from a biblical point of view, mankind can only get on the same page by starting from the same place. Did you hear that? Mankind can only get on the same page by starting from the same place. Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2 help us to do that. So when you think about Genesis chapter 1, think about the big picture view of creation. You've got, you've got the creation of the world, and kind of a, a little footnote on day, the end of day 6 is the creation of man. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, Moses really zooms in to show us the design of God, the design of marriage, the design of gender, and how they really exist to bring fullness uh, to uh, humankind. And so our big idea today is this, is that God designed humankind with the capacity to experience his fullness in every way. And he does this, and here are our points for today, bringing us to life through his spirit 
giving us meaningful and obedient work to do today, and designing us for community with one another. So let's dig in today. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. Only God can bring us to life. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were, uh, when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then the man became a living creature. So we've been talking about how God's designed the world for flourishing and fullness. And what you see in Genesis chapter 2 is that all of creation is on the threshold of bursting with life. I mean, it is poised. It is ready. The trees are ready to bear fruit. The seed is ready to grow. The animals are ready to reproduce. Yet there's this lifeless man created in God's image without the life of God in him. And God just seems to be interested, so interested in mankind's dominion of his world that he pauses everything until he breathes life into the man. Consider that. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It shows really the preeminence that mankind has over creation, that, that what he's existed as for. And, and so he starts off with this phrase, uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this is significant because Moses is actually looking at a bigger picture than Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, he, he knows God's plan, Abraham through Israel, and he has the promise of the future king who's going to come. And he, he zooms out and he speaks to this concept that's really future-oriented. He says generations. So the Bible wants to tell us the story of mankind, not just not just in Genesis, but from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Have you ever wondered why the genealogies are in the Bible? You know, the ones that I get Megan to read every time they come up? Yeah, if you've been around, you know I do that. That's a little trick. Um, the reason the genealogies are in the Bible and the reason the book of Numbers is in the Bible is to connect us to Adam. And not only connect us to Adam, connect us forward to Christ. Because if, if we're not connected to Adam... We're not connected to the, the second Adam, who's Jesus Christ. If we don't agree about the, the coming of the first man, Adam, and our identity found in him, how will the second man, Jesus, ever save us? This is why you see these. And, and we don't talk about the beginning that often. And I think the reason that, and I think this is the reason why Jesus and his good news is so dull to our senses sometimes. It's because we don't think about the whole story, the cosmic redemption that God planned before the beginning of the world to save us through his son, Jesus. That should never get old to Christians. And I think it does sometimes because we don't think about the big picture. Now, he says that he creates man of dust, but the dust is not enough to animate him. He needs the breath, the breath of God. So, you know, it's not that the dust was bad. The dust was good because everything was good. But I think he, he, he wants to show us in a lot of ways that we are not like God, that we're dust. But in other ways, we are like God because we have his breath inside of us. So I, you kind of have this picture of like a lifeless corpse that CPR is being performed on. You ever, anybody train on CPR? 
You got that little dummy, right? And you get down there and they change the rules every, since I've been trained. But, you know, or you think about, if you're like me, you think about the sandlot when you see CPR happen, right? Anybody? You haven't, a couple of you seen it, good. Uh, but anyway, it's this super intimate image of how mankind was brought to life. Think about that. God could have spoke us into existence. He could have spoken breath into our lungs, spoken life into us, and he chose to be face-to-face and breathe life into us. That indicates what kind of relationship he wants with you and I for all the generations that will ever live, an intimate, personal relationship. So the Spirit of God is breathed into the man's life, And what we see is that if the breath of God isn't breathed in, it doesn't matter what your physical body looks like, what your physical activities look like, because you're dead. But God designed us to be alive. We know that because of the fall, the scripture said that we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. Let's look at Ephesians chapter two just real quick here and connect the dots from, from Adam to Jesus here. Scriptures say this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you hear the generational language there? The sons of disobedience. That's every generation after Adam, the sons of disobedience. That is us apart from Christ. And he says, and he goes on to describe us. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We did whatever we wanted carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And because of this, we by nature were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if you don't read Genesis chapter two and understand the fall and why Jesus came, you won't understand this. You'll just think that God's a bully. You'll just look at it and you'll just say, you know, God just is not that loving. Like how could he say I'm a child of wrath? It's because we don't understand the consequence of what happened in the garden. And we don't understand the the supply of what Jesus came to give us in redemption. So he, he basically shows us that we are that lifeless corpse lying on the ground of the Garden of Eden without the Spirit of God being breathed into us. But the thing that makes our God so different is that our disobedience does not stop his love. Listen to the rest of verses four and five. But God, because the transition here, he's pulling on resources in and of himself, affections in and of himself, not things that he feels about us because of what we do, but because of what's in his heart. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He breathed the breath of the Holy Spirit into us when we were dead and animated our lives again. That's what Jesus has come to do. The breath of life that we were designed for is gone because of sin. It's sucked out of us. We may be physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. We're just, we're just like the walking dead apart from the Spirit saving us and animating us and filling us with his breath. He says that even though we were made in Adam to live forever and flourish and our whole lives, church, to be worship, we became objects of God's displeasure because of our disobedience. 
And this is every single descendant of Adam, which is every single person on the face of the planet. But because God's not just a God of judgment, of justice and, and, um, and wrath, but he's also a God of love and mercy, he makes a way to redeem us by sending his own son. He sends Jesus, who is, as the book of Romans tells us, the second Adam. You see, we don't need a second chance, church. You know what we need? We need a second Adam. So many of us live our lives thinking we just need a second chance. We don't need that. We need a second Adam. We need a new man to breathe life into us. Listen to what Romans 5 says. The free gift is not like the trespass. So in other words, grace is not like what happened in the garden. It's different. It's a new covenant. For if many died through the one man's trespass, or many died through what Adam did, much more we have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, and it's abounded for many, he says. So it's important to see that it's important to see this about, about this man, Adam, that he was made, he was that that he was made to obey God, made to lovingly obey God. And to have life in that. And so what we're going to look at now is, is not only did God bring Adam to life, but he gave him meaningful work to do in the world. That, that, that in fact, he, he, he channeled his beautiful, cre- uh, creative stewardship and dominion through Adam. And that this was intended to be Adam's worship. You think about this. In the Bible, in the garden, there wasn't like a, there wasn't, there wasn't like a church building, you know, like east, of, you know, east side of Eden or whatever, right? And it wasn't like where, hey, Adam works on the west end of, of the garden, right? His whole life was work. His whole life was worship. It was all good. It's so different than the way that we think about our lives, but we're intended for all of our lives to be a life of worship. So let's continue reading Genesis 2. Let's look at verse 8 here. We were made with the capacity to obediently serve God. So verse 8 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So a couple things we want to note here. When, when it says that um, the Lord God put Adam uh, into the garden that he'd made for him, that is the same word we get for rest. Do you remember what we talked about last week? We talked about rest last week. And we talked about how we were, everything that we're looking for in the world is rest. And it's the thing that God's promised us, that, that we have a future of rest. And it's not like we have a future of naps, you know, but rest is more than that. It's our deep desire, it's our deep longing to have shalom, to have peace, to be flourishing in the world. So this word put here is the same word for rest. So what he's saying is that, God put Adam in the garden, so he, he, he put them there and placed them in a position of rest and to work from that position. And, um, and, he, and, he, and he caused him, uh, he gave him a mission of work to do that would kind of bring alignment to everything that he created him to be. And, and, and because he was relating to his work from a place of rest, there was, uh, he, there was, this, there was this balance, this... Um, rhythmic kind of process that Adam had in the garden that we see where, you know, it it wasn't like he needed, like, you know, like we talked about last week, like work, 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 vacation. That's not how he related to his work. He wasn't overly consumed with his work, 
but he also wasn't lax in his work. He worked from a place of rest, and it's a model for us and how we're called to relate to our work on this earth. And, and we see that, you know, this man has been intimately brought to life, and creation comes alive to provide for the man and man to provide for creation. And this, this give and take of God's provision and our work is a theme that will play out through the rest of eternity. That, that, that God is pleased to provide for us, but there's also a responsibility to, to, to respond to what God has provided for us. It's the same way, reason that Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, we know that he's given us the full supply of grace, right? He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, the Bible says. But he also says you've got to work it out. It's the same reason where you're like, hey, I know God's going to provide for me, but hey, you also got to show up at work on Monday, right? It's this, it's this tension that we'll see that'll play out throughout eternity. That it's the reason that the, the, the kingdom of God begins in a garden, but where does it end? In a city, right? Well, how is that city cultivated? Through the people of God, right? Yeah, it is. It's, it's cultivated. I mean, eventually God will he, will, he will renew and restore all things, but the design was that the kingdom of God will be established through the work of men by God's spirit's power. So let's look at a few of the details about Eden. Moses includes these. He says, uh, Genesis 2.10, he says, there was this river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. God's providing for the garden, you see. And it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So what you see is that creation is bursting with not only provision, but beauty, abundant beauty. Why does he talk about these rare stones and precious minerals? I mean, the, the garden is expensive, it's ornate, it's over the top. And I want you to take note here, this is exactly what heaven is gonna be like. Think about this, listen to, listen to Revelation 21, because the only difference between heaven and the garden is we're gonna be living in a cultivated and perfected city not a perfect garden. Listen to what God has promised us in Revelation 21. He gives some details about this new Jerusalem. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city, here's our word again, was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I'm gonna read a few of these here. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, and the fifth, here's our word from Genesis 2, onyx. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. Think about that, a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, John writes, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or sun to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So what we see here is that all of life, both in the garden and in heaven, is a life of cultivation and good work. 
But all of that rest and all of that work and all that cultivation is worship. He says there's no need for a temple in the New Jerusalem. So what do you mean? We ain't going to church in New Jerusalem? Are you kidding me? It's the same reason we're going to look at in a few minutes that there's no need of earthly marriage in the New Jerusalem. You see, we have such a small view of who Jesus is and how the things that we participate in in this world all point to him. Everything. And that's why everything that we do, everything we were designed to do, whether it be work or whether it be to, you know, care for a family, provide, to rest, all of those things we're made to worship out of. There's, there's, there's no bifurcated nature of worship in God's economy. He's, he's designed us to be whole and integrated beings. I mean, let's tease out the potential a little bit here. Can you imagine being in the New Jerusalem and you go out to the apple orchard and you're picking a, a, apples and Jesus is telling us about how fruitful our lives have been in this kingdom? Or, or could you imagine planting seed and Jesus reminding us of all of the work that he has done throughout our lives? And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He just reminds you of the work that he's done through you. Or maybe seeing the saints of old, you know, Peter, Paul, John, Luther, all those guys, family members, and Jesus reminding us how we were always made to be a part of the family of God. This is the type of kind of whole life integration that God had in mind in the garden and will be present in eternity. No matter what the work is that we do, it's a work that cultivates the earth and turns the garden into a city. Let's, let's continue reading Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you will surely die. Okay, so God speaks to the man and he tells him to do two things. Those two things are this, to work the garden and to keep the garden. So, which means this, to cultivate the garden, that our lives are to be about cultivation, but also protecting the garden. They were called the steward things. And when he gives this command, he, he tells them that he can eat from everything in the garden. I mean, thousands of things in the garden that God's created. You know, millions, I don't know, lots. But there's just this one. And if you do that one, the very breath that I gave you to bring you to life will be gone from you, he's saying. The very presence of God, the very holistic nature of flourishing with God will be removed from you. And um, Adam, you know, he's been feasting on the tree of life. You know, I don't know how long Adam was in the garden before sin occurred, you know, but it's tasty. He's been enjoying communion with God. And there was this picturesque wholeness, you know, the types of things that we, that we long, long for, you know, no jaw dropping headlines, no political mailers for you to throw away. I mean, <laughs> I mean, no, no friction with God and creation, no family drama. Jesus came to restore us to that type of wholeness and flourishing. Have you ever wondered why Jesus's favorite place to pray was what? A garden. Think about that for a second. Out of all the places that Jesus could have prayed, 
Why in the world would he go to a garden to pray? Do you think he was thinking about what existed in the garden? Do you think he was longing for his people, those who would die to save, to be restored to that type of fellowship that they had in the garden? I think so. You ever wonder why Jesus, whenever, whenever he was coming into the um, Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the week that he's gonna be betrayed and crucified and raised from the dead, when he's coming down the Mount of Olives for the triumphal entry, we celebrate Palm Sunday, he's coming down the Mount of Olives right before he starts that descent, what's he do? He curses a what? A tree, a fig tree, right? We're not told what the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what kind of fruit it has on it. Maybe it has figs, I don't know. Why would he curse that tree? Could it be because of all the pain that his people have felt from eating of the tree that they weren't supposed to? See, Jesus, his whole mission was about bringing us back to the land of Eden, but a cultivated Eden, a new Jerusalem. And you see these themes over and over and over again that Jesus is trying to bring us back home. You see, this is why the theme of obedience is so crucial. If, if we, because the, the command that God gives him here is the first kind of instruction that he gives him that comes with a consequence, which this is, he's making a covenant with Adam. He's saying, Adam, you're gonna have life forever if you obey me. There's just this one thing you can't do and then life is gonna be removed from you. You'll die. And, uh, and Adam disobeys him. So this is, this is where obedience kind of comes into play. And here's the, thing about, here's, the thing, here's the thing about it for us as Christians is if we don't grasp the essential nature of obedience, if, if, we, if we don't think that we ought to obey God as Christians, then we'll never have any assurance that God is with us, that he's forgiven us, and that he loves us. Because truth is kind of a, a, a it's a wandering target, right? But if we don't grasp the essential nature of obedience that leads to flourishing, we won't value repentance as Christians. So when you think about your life and you think about, you know, the, the things in your life that haven't lined up with God's will, the things that have proved that we're of this world, not of God, right? What do you do with those? The scriptures say that we're called to confess our sin and to repent of it. And James 5.16 says that when we confess that sin, that healing comes when we confess it to one another. You see, this is why the Bible says that it grieves the Holy Spirit when we disobey and rebel against God as Christians. Because see, what God's done is he's given us back his spirit. He's given us back his abundant life in Christ. And whenever we, we disobey and we continue to sin, we grieve his heart because he's done everything to save us. So I, Genesis 2 makes me ask the question of myself, how important is repentance to me? Or do I just kind of brush over sins and let truth be a moving target? Because when we, when we confess our sins, I know it's not fun to do. What we're doing is linking ourselves back up to the God of Adam who came to restore us through Jesus. So let's look at our last point now. It's the point that I could have made the whole sermon about, but... I wanted to show you kind of the full picture that we were made to deeply desire community and our communion with God. So God's created us for flourishing. He's proved to us that he's created us through flourishing by giving us work to do and then putting parameters of obedience on that work. 
But, but what we see here in Genesis 2 is that that work was not enough for God to reveal himself to us and us to know God. Let's listen to Genesis 2, 18 through 25. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, there was not a, I found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So first part of this, the Lord sets Adam loose to live out of his design, to do his work, his dominion, creative work. So he's functioning and exercising authority and he's giving, he's giving names to all the, 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 the animals. You know, and, and sometimes you know, it's like, you know, maybe, maybe you hear like a name that's different for a person. But when you think about the names of some of these animals that Adam made, and I, I'm not sure about the etymology and how they've changed over the years, but I mean, here, here's some kind of interesting names. Anybody ever seen a spiny lump sucker? How about a pink fairy armadillo? Or my personal favorite, the satanic leaf-tailed gecko. That one was a little too personal for Adam, I think. Adam's work, his worship and his rest he comes to this realization and the Lord leads him to come to this realization, right? He comes to this realization that something's missing, that as great as it's been living in the zoo and riding on lions, that he's not complete, that he's lonely. And it's not good that, that no, nothing else in all of God's creation is compatible for the complexity of who God is to mankind. That there's something missing and God says for the first time, it's not, it's not good. And so what does God do? Well, he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And I just want all the ladies to notate that God's best work was done while man was taking a nap. So the next time a guy wants to take a nap, he can just say it's biblical and it's good. It's good to go. But God takes from Adam, and the, the reason why it's so important to understand why God created out of Adam is, is this, is because if God would have created out of the dust again, it, it, we wouldn't be restored in one, the, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So I want to unpack this a little bit more here. There's a lot of mystery here, but mankind is not complete, is not full, and cannot flourish without the distinction of gender, of male and female. God cannot be imaged in one gender only. This is why the distortions of gender like chauvinism or feminism are inadequate for a Christian worldview. Because God cannot be imaged in one gender. We need both genders to image God. In Adam, uh, all of who God is was not being revealed to creation and all of who God is was not being revealed to Adam. 
This, this whole idea of Adam not being good alone, I want to make a distinction here. It's not saying that singleness is bad. It's saying that loneliness is not good. That, that's the distinction to make there because you can, you can, you can develop kind of a, a philosophy or a theology here that God's not intending for you to, to, to develop about singleness not being good. He's saying that loneliness is not the design. And, and we know this because Paul talks about the gift of singleness. And Jesus, the most important figure on the face of the planet, was the singlest man you've ever seen before, okay? So, so we get that. We see that. So let's, let's move on in and talk a little bit more about this. The, the real point here is that we were made for community. Eve's creation comes from the need of a helper. Now, when you think about the word helper, um, it's in the English, it's a word that seems weak, doesn't it? What if I were to tell you that that's not the, the Hebrew intent of the word? Because when we think about helper, we think about assistant. You know, someone that, that uh, gets the coffee, runs the errands, picks up the kids from school, you know, a helper, all the menial tasks. That's not what Genesis 2 is describing. The Hebrew idea of the word helper means a provider for what is lacking. A helper here is the idea of someone who helps out of strength, not weakness, to cover the weaknesses of the other part of the image of God. So Eve and every other woman made by God on the face of the planet bring about what was lacking in God's image in man. Do you understand that? It's so crucial that we get that because there's been so much distortion over gender throughout the years. Here's what help implies, that the helper is actually more capable of doing something or being something than the one that they are helping. And it also infers that a helper uses their strength in power, in a way that supports and enables the flourishing of all of mankind. That's not weakness to me. I don't know about you. And this is why Jesus in his ministry, church, is constantly uprooting the idea that women are inferior to men. Jesus' entire ministry evidenced the Genesis 2 view of Genesis, even though we live in a Genesis 3 world. My preaching. You guys understanding this? This is why this is so crucial for us. It doesn't change the design of marriage and spiritual headship and submission because what we do is we put that in categories of strength and weakness. That's not what the Bible does. That's not what Jesus, that's not what God designed marriage for to represent. So how should Christians understand gender? I'm going to get to marriage in just a second, but I want to pause on gender. The first thing that we've got to say about gender, and this is so crucial that the church understand this, because the culture is absolutely going off the rails on this right now. Megan and I were on a trip in Europe, and she sat next to a psychologist that helps children change their genders. This is here this is right here. The church, church, we are the only ones with the worldview and the power of the gospel to demonstrate this faithfully. Gender is given by God because without God, man is not alive and God gets to define it for us. Gender identity, it's not a social construct. It's a biological reality. It, and here's what it means. It means that only through accepting and understanding our maleness and our femaleness can we really understand ourselves. Male and female are, are equal yet complementary. And there's all kinds 
of distortions on how we view gender, right? There's all kinds. And I would venture to say this, if you think that you don't have, the fall has not hit how you view gender, you're mistaken because it has, it, it has left no stone unturned in the world. You, not, you may not be coaching your children up for a, uh, you know, a, a, a sex change surgery, but you may, think, you may think too highly or too lowly about a gender. You may have distortions in the way that you think about gender. It is imperative that however it is for you that their brokenness exists, that you do not hide this because it is absolutely agonizing to wrestle through how sin has hit our view of gender alone. It, it is so impossible. But here's the thing is that so many churches are not equipped to help people wrestle with this. And it's because they don't understand grace deeply enough. They don't understand. We, we, get too, we get too wigged out on our own phobias that we can't help the church flourish. At New City Church, our heartbeat has always been that there would not be one sin that's taboo enough to keep it in the dark. Remember what the book of 1 John taught us? That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, right? That we'll have wholeness and flourishing and that God will bless us, right? That we're not called to, to live in the darkness it's to live without the Spirit's power at work in us. John talked about this over and over and over. Lean into this, whatever it is. If you're a parent, lean into that. Your kids are gonna have questions. They're gonna have friends. They may have things that they're dealing with on their own. Do not think that God cannot work in their lives or your life, no matter what it is. Because God's grace is much stronger than our sin. And the resurrection proves that for us. Let's talk a little bit about marriage here as well. The biblical view of marriage is male and female. It is the only way to fulfill the cultural mandate from a biological point of view. It, it's, it's clear in the scriptures. But, but it also, the, the other thing I want to say about marriage is this, is that most importantly, marriage is given to reveal to us the nature of who God is. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter five. He echoes Genesis two. He says, there, says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The whole leave and cleave thing. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Now he's not talking about the mystery of like how different men and women are. He's talking about the mystery of how marriage is not even about those two people that are married. It's about Jesus. He says that it refers to Christ in the church. So the mystery of marriage is becoming one flesh of intimacy in marriage is actually about Jesus. So let me say it again. Marriage is not about us. In any, in any way that we try to make marriage about us, about our, about our needs, and about our life. I mean, I, I can think about people that have gotten married and they thought that it was going to fix all of their problems. And then they just realized that that person they're married to is a mirror of all their problems. They saw more, right? It's what happens in marriage. It's God's sanctification tool to show us our need of Jesus. And it, this is why Ephesians 5, we see how marriage is, is a covenant 
that's about God, about our relationship to God and our distinct evidence of who Jesus is and must be through our unique genders. Because we cannot make, we cannot make up the image of God without male and female. And so in Ephesians 5, I, I don't have time to read the whole thing, but men are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. So love, according to Ephesians 5 in marriage, is about sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice that you're comfortable with, but the sacrifice to the magnitude of Christ giving himself up for the church. God's design for you men is to be a selfless, servant-hearted leader, no matter what you're doing. And this is really whether you're married or not. His design is for us to be selfless, servant-hearted leaders, no matter what we're doing, but especially in the context of marriage if you are married. Why? Because Jesus was this perfectly, and God's design in us is to showcase to the world through who we are what Jesus is about and what he came to do. That's his design for men. You can read through Ephesians 5 if you'd like later this week. But for women, you know, the one who completed the image of God and what was lacking in the world, I just want to reiterate that, God has made you fearfully and wonderfully to, to be led by and to be served by your husband. And, and when we get on to Genesis 3, we'll see that, that the way the fall has hit women is they, they said that there's going to be times where you don't want to be led. And it's because, you know, your, your husband's a knucklehead and he's getting it wrong. And yeah, all that stuff's going to exist. But kind of the, the recorrection in, in Ephesians 5 is that you don't let your husband lead you because he's good at leading, but because Jesus is leading you. That, that, that's the difference is what he's talking about here. And he says, he's talking about this and he says, the most, really the most kind thing you can ever give your husband as he imperfectly leads you is respect and dignity. That's what Ephesians 5.33 says. Not because he deserves it, but because Jesus does. And Jesus is lovingly working out his image in that man as you submit to him, even in his sometimes faulty and often tardy spiritual leadership. It's how God's designed the world to showcase himself. You see, marital love makes visible how God loves the world totally, faithfully, freely, and fruitfully. For Christians, the love between spouses is meant to reveal how God loves the world. But may we never worship the idea of marriage or our spouse. You know why? Here's what's gonna happen in eternity. The first thing that each of us are gonna do that are married is get divorced and be married to Christ. Matthew 22 says there's gonna be no marriage in heaven because the whole point of marriage is to point you to the marriage that you will have with Christ. This is why we can say this, that marriage, marriage doesn't make sense without Jesus, without the Spirit empowering you. And we see all kinds of distortions of this in, in culture. Um, you know, we see all kinds of ways that people live outside of God's design for marriage, whether it's, you know, two, you know, folks that are, that are not equally yoked getting married and trying to make sense out of life and realizing that if they don't have the spirit, it doesn't really work. Or whether it's, it's, it's things like homosexual marriages, 
really living outside of God's design. Genesis 2 serves to recenter all of that for us and to show us God's design. And, you know, while we wait for that glorious day, no matter whether you're single or married, we can say this, that we were not made to be alone on this earth. We were made for communion with God and community with others. There's no other way to be human. And I, I don't know about you, but this has probably been one of the most lonely years of my life. You, anybody else? It's been a lonely year, right? Haven't seen your friends, haven't seen your family, been cut off because of social distancing and pandemics and quarantines and just the hostility of it all. And I was reminded this week as I was reading Mark chapter 14 that Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who's praying, you remember he just wanted his disciples to stay up with him and pray with him. And he just didn't have the strength to do it. And that would lead Jesus into the, the most lonely few days of his life when he would endure the cross alone because only a lonely man could save lonely people. And he took it to the cross alone to redeem us. And that's why we have hope, even in the midst of our struggle with God's design. So I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna to turn to the table together. Father, we thank you um, that even though we experience so much struggle and how you've made us, so much pain and questioning, whether that's in how we view marriage or singleness or gender or even how we relate to work, all of those things that you've designed for us. You've promised that you're making all things new in us. And, and we're reminded today that you are. And so Father, I pray that you'd help us as we, as we, we can't wait, Lord, to be made whole with you. We can't wait for these foretastes that we have in this life to come to completion, to be whole and flourishing just like we were designed to in the garden. So we pray that you'd help us as we long for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.